Let's open in our Bibles to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. We're taking this just about a verse or two verses at a time. And we'll slow down for the next several weeks because we're in the passage that is the Beatitudes, each one of them worthy of a study in and of itself. Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right off the bat, the Sermon on the Mount promises happiness because this word blessed, repeated so often, means something like, oh, how happy and to be envied. And so there's a, there's a kind of happiness that is promised. Uh, it's a happiness that we would probably better describe as true satisfaction rather than uh, happiness. This pursuit of happiness is something many are engaged in. I think when our founding fathers talked about the pursuit of happiness, they weren't, I would guess they weren't just talking about the kind of temporary, momentary happiness that, that people settle for today, uh, but more of a settled satisfaction. The way most people go about pursuing happiness is bound to backfire and produce misery because in our society people are pursuing and looking for an easy, satisfy-me-now kind of experience that avoids any discipline or difficulty of having a satisfying journey. And um, I don't know whether it's a marriage or raising children or building a business or uh, working in the church, whatever it is, uh, there's there's a happiness and a satisfaction that comes through discipline and, and working through difficulties. Uh, I know as you get later in your life, a lot of us are much later in our life, but you know, when your, your kids are grown, you see, you've got some history to look back on, uh, there's a satisfaction that, that comes that you can't get instantaneously. It's something that had to build up over the years. And uh, so that's the kind of happiness that we're ultimately talking about doesn't mean it's all deferred that you have to that you can't be satisfied along the way because the Lord can do that as well but we're talking about a settled satisfaction here in these beatitudes these series of statements that begin with the word blessed are commonly called the beatitudes uh, they list at least seven characteristics that make up the Christian character and then the eighth beatitude deals with the reaction of the world to these traits so that's kind of a one scheme of looking at them. Some people think there are seven Beatitudes, some eight, some nine. really doesn't matter how many or how uh, there are as long as we understand uh, the words. But basically there's about seven character traits, one uh, that talks about the world's reaction uh, after that. And they're the Lord's description of every single believer. This is what we are to be like as Christians. In other words, it's not a description of just certain super saints or a few people who have broken through and achieved this. Uh, This is the everyday expectation, at least, of every Christian. And so today, I should know that I can be blessed, happy, and to be envied because I realize that I'm poor in spirit and have inherited the kingdom of heaven. Uh, All of us are to manifest all of these characteristics, and what we'll see as we go through this is that they're not natural, they are not traits of our personality. They're supernatural, they're produced in us by the indwelling Holy Spirit, Uh, 
they're the product of grace rather than our effort. And that's important because when you go through this, you, you, you can identify certain things that are more true of you or other people that, you know, somebody who seems poor in spirit, maybe a humble, behind-the-scenes kind of a person, uh, but that can even be an unbeliever. Uh, and, and, and so we're not really talking about uh, looking at something and altering our own behavior, and we'll see in a minute that the, these things can only be achieved ultimately if you're a Christian by depending upon the Lord. And, and so, and that's kind of the interesting thing about the Christian life because, you know, I, I remember when I was a young Christian, everybody would say, let go and let God. Uh, but, and I understand that, and I think that's, that can be profound, but there's a sense in which well, where does discipline come in? Where does study come in? You know that. And, and there's always this tension in the Christian life uh, over how much is God doing? Well, he's doing all of it, but then what is my component? You know, am I, and, and there is a component to it in terms of yielding and obedience, uh, but we want to be careful not to invest too much of ourself in, in what happens because we, we want to give the glory to God. So the Beatitudes begin and end with the phrase, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We'll jump ahead to that phrase for a minute because it gives us a, a little context here. In the New Testament, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are pretty much used interchangeably. Uh, and, and so I guess you can, if you really want to delineate them, uh, the kingdom of God seems to refer, refer to God's sovereign rule over the whole universe of which the kingdom of heaven would be a, a part of that. Uh, and so we sometimes talk about the kingdom of God on earth or the kingdom of heaven on earth. And I don't know that we're really talking about two different things, uh, except that, um, you know, the kingdom of heaven, we might describe more of the millennial kingdom or certain times when Jesus was on earth and such, whereas the kingdom of God is the overarching idea that God rules. So we don't want to make a big deal about that, but we'll, we'll put it in its context in a minute. So the first thing you must know is that you belong to a different kingdom than the citizens of this world. Because if, you, if you're the poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And if you go through these other beatitudes, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And so, we, so that is a, a, a words of Christ in red are a red flag for us that, that we are in another land, another kingdom. It's a kingdom that is coming for sure. It's coming when Jesus returns. Uh, and establishes it for a thousand years, and then there's a sense in which it continues on throughout eternity. Uh, you know, it's, it's probably not technically proper to call the future the kingdom of God, but it certainly will be because God will be ruling. But there's always a sense in which the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is present uh, wherever the rule of Jesus Christ is. When the Lord was on the earth, he said the kingdom of God is among you. Uh, and, and so wherever he is ruling in individual lives... That's a manifestation of the kingdom. And so though we don't live in the literal kingdom, we live in a spiritual kingdom. Uh, and so happiness begins in an odd way. That's, that's kind of my, that's my, I mean, if you're honest about this, uh, if, if let's say you're a brand new Christian or you're uh, just seeking the Lord and you say, well, how can I be happy? And if somebody said, oh, you're going to be so happy and envied if you're poor in spirit, that is absolutely the opposite of what anybody would ever think, apart from the words of Jesus, you would have never equated the starting point of happiness with being poor in spirit. I mean, nobody in our world does that. 
if, if you ask different people how to be happy, uh, you know, even uh, some might say money or whatever else they're into, but others might be philanthropic and say, well, you know, helping other people or Habitat for Humanity, or you know, there, there might be a way that these are the things that will make you happy. And, and I don't think hardly anyone other than a Christian would say to be poor in spirit. Uh, so that's that's a very interesting and kind of a shocking statement. Many commentators have discovered a progression in these beatitudes, uh, in in that they build one upon the other. And so we'll see that as we go through them. If that's the case, and it is, then being poor in spirit is the bedrock or the foundation upon which everything else rests. So if they're going to build on each other, whatever you start with is the foundation. And so this is very important stuff. Uh, interesting uh, illustration, I think, is the word I could use, because Jesus was on this mount giving this sermon. Uh, last week I talked about this being a sermon that definitely was given on the mount, but also either the entire sermon or parts of it were probably things that Jesus said wherever he went. Uh, But this particular Sermon on the Mount that is recorded by Matthew is itself a subtle illustration. To a certain extent, his listeners had to climb the mount. Uh, I don't, you know, it's it's not Everest, obviously, you know, but but there's a picture there of making an ascent to the summit, Jesus sitting at the summit telling you uh, exactly what the Christian life is like, what God expects, what you can expect, Uh, And so this sermon, with its teaching, essentially presents the spiritual mount that you must climb. Uh, It reveals dizzying heights that you must ascend in order to live the Christian life. But as it begins, you're told that you can't do it at all because you're poor in spirit and by yourself, therefore, you're utterly helpless to take even the first step to the summit. so, so that's the picture. So it, it's interesting. Jesus is a, just a master illustrator, obviously, in, in very simple terms. And, and just stepping back, you think, well, here's Jesus. You know, and Jesus as the representative man, as, as all that God intends man to be in his humanity, on that summit, telling you what humankind is and what manhood is and, and, and all of that. And then you're seeing, well, I, I need to ascend to that. I need to, uh, you know, get up that hill. And then the first thing he says, but you are a beggar when it comes to your spiritual condition. Uh, and, and you're not going to be able to make it. The world values self-reliance and self-confidence and self-expression. Uh, I Maybe it's just me, but I think the entire philosophy of the world is summed up by Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way. Uh, I, I really do. I think he is the prototypical person. Uh, he, you know, claws and scratches and makes it in life and, and is defiant and says, I did it my way. You know, regrets I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention and uh, and, and, you know, the whole anthem, you know, that, that this, is, this is what people want to do. That is really the spirit of the world. It's revealed in many different ways, but, but that's a good one. And so until you experience the poverty of your spirit, though, you cannot begin this ascent. You cannot ever be truly happy or satisfied. Poor in spirit as opposed to rich. It's a realization and confession that you have no spiritual assets. That's what a poor person is. They, they don't have the assets that other wealthy people have. And so you have no spiritual assets because this word for poor 
is really a, 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 the word that would describe extreme poverty, the extreme poverty of a beggar. We might joke about being relatively poor when compared to other people in our own society or, uh, you know, Bill Gates, that kind of thing. And, you know, we, none of us have all the money that we would like to do anything that we would want to do, but, but we, I think we recognize that we're doing okay. Uh, but what we're talking about here isn't a relative lack of wealth or having a little bit less. This is an, an, a, an abject beggar. This is a person who has nothing and, and crawls out of wherever they live and, and just begs. Uh, this is the guy at the temple who you know, Peter and John encounter. And they say, silver and gold, we have none, which must have been pretty deflating to the guy. You know, then just move on. You know, I've got, this is my begging space. I've got a license to be here and I need silver and gold, you know. But, but uh, they gave him more than he bargained for. But this is, this is a beggar. Uh, and poor in spirit doesn't mean that by nature you are insignificant or without value. It means that your spirit has nothing by which to commend yourself to God. Uh, there, there's nothing in your spiritual account. You're a spiritual beggar with no hope of heaven until you realize you're a spiritual beggar with no hope of heaven and then you cry out to God to save you. That's, that's kind of the, the interesting thing about the, the Christian life is that you have to realize your poverty before you can be rich in faith. And those of us who've had a conversion, we understand that to a certain extent. It's like one day you, you came into the understanding that I just don't, I can't get to heaven on my own. There's, there's nothing that I can commend to God. But having realized that, Jesus takes my place, stood in my place, and as I accept him and put my faith in him, I am accepted in him. So, that's, so being poor in spirit, on the one hand, it's, it's where you start. It's how you get saved. And so if Jesus, he's talking to his disciples about discipleship, but others are listening to this sermon, and others would read it, uh, and others do read it, and and this is the beginning point of the Christian life. The beginning point of a relationship with God is to is to say, "I am a beggar spiritually, and I must come to God begging that He would save me." Uh, what is it then to be poor in spirit after you are saved? It seems to be in Scripture a proper assessment of ourselves with regard to the presence and the glory of God. It's to see myself in relation to God in his glory and, and to do that pretty much on a continual basis uh, so that I don't uh, start to think more highly of myself than I ought to. And you see this all over the Old Testament. I, I think probably the best example of it is Isaiah. He was already God's prophet. He'd had successful ministry with King Uzziah. But there in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, he said, in the year King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he declared that he was a man of unclean lips, even though he had spoken the word of God. The only thing amazing about that was they were words of God. It had nothing to do with the vessel. He, he, he didn't deserve to be God's prophet. And he said, I, I'm from a people of unclean lips. There, there's, there's really no one that is even qualified or capable of speaking for God. And then the angel, God dispatches the angel. The angel takes the coal from the altar and touches his lips. And, and then, uh, you know, the Lord says, who am I going to send? And Isaiah says, well, here am I, send me. And, and it's that whole 
picture of, uh, you know, obviously we use it a lot to talk about missionaries being sent out, but it, it's really just, a, to me, it's a picture of what we're talking about, of being poor in spirit. I mean, here's, I mean, Isaiah was, is, is one of the big prophets. He's one of the major prophets, you know. I mean, I did, and, and he knew it, you know. I mean, I mean, you've got the minor prophets, you know, Haggai and those guys, but, I mean, he's a major prophet with some of the most phenomenal prophecies and just the most beautiful prose and poetry and, and narrative in all the Word of God. And, and he was in the middle of that. He, it wasn't, this wasn't when he was first commissioned. I mean, he had been a prophet for some time under King Uzziah. And, and he says, man, I, I have to have this experience again of, of seeing the poverty of spirit even, even as a servant of God. And then God commissions me fresh and new and sends me out with his Word. Uh, Gideon had a poverty of spirit when the angel commissioned him to deliver God's people. He's hiding in a, uh, you know, a cave, threshing, because he's afraid of the Midianites and, and all. Uh, he said, hey, I'm the least person in the least family of the least tribe, so you know, maybe you've got the wrong address here or something, and God commissioned him. David is constantly astonished that God would call him and use him and make a household of him in, in terms of a lineage and those kinds of things. In Psalms, he says, you know, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him. And so there, there's this attitude. Looking closer to us in the New Testament, we see Peter who once asked the Lord to depart from him because he realized his poverty of spirit. He said, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm a sinful man. He recognized he was in the presence of deity when Jesus did that miracle with the fish. Uh, the ultimate expression, though, of this, and each of the Beatitudes, needs to be Jesus himself because Jesus on that summit is not just teaching, he's exampling, he's saying, I am the, the epitome of what it means to be a human being. Uh, and, and we see this poverty of spirit in the Lord in that he left heaven for earth and on earth, in his human body, he lived completely as a man, although he was still God. And in his poverty of spirit, he would declare things like, I can do nothing of myself. And, and you scratch your head and you think, what, was he God? Was he man? You know, and, and this is where people who aren't Christians, he was God, fully God and fully man, but he said, I'm going to live only as a man. I'm going to lay aside the right to use my deity and live as a man should live. And, and then he says things like, I can't do anything then by myself. Only what my father tells me to say, that's all that I say. Only what my father allows me to do, that's all that I do. Uh, you know, a lot is made all the time of Jesus waiting several days to go and raise Lazarus from the dead. As a man, I'm sure he wanted to go immediately and raise Lazarus from the dead. His, it was his friend, he cried at the tomb, but he only did what God told him to do. And so he lived in that utter dependence upon the Lord. In John 14.10, he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. And so you see the Lord, fully God yet fully man, praying and seeking his Father's will and permission. And so he's the model for us of total dependence upon God. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a commentator I really like on the Sermon on the Mount, offers this as a definition of being poor in spirit. He says, and I quote, it means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing then that we can produce. It is nothing that we can do in ourselves. 
It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. And, and what that translates into is that we don't rely on our natural temperament or our natural birth as to a status or something like that. We don't rely on our position in life or upon wealth or upon education or any of the things that we really do put weight on as a society. I mean, we do judge people based on different things. We've been joking this morning about uh, Senator Kerry's comments, you know, but, uh, you know, depicting educated people versus uneducated people who he says are in the military. And, and, and that only carries some weight because we, we do as a society and as a people put different weight on people, uh, depending on what school they graduated from, how much money they have, all of those things. And, and what we're being told here is that being, a, you know, being poor in spirit reduces us all to a level playing field. And, and so I might, you know, there might be a Paul the Apostle, tremendously educated, gifted individual in terms of intellectual prowess, uh, but God would use Peter just as remarkably, uh, an uneducated, ignorant fisherman who, who understood little of those kinds of things. Uh, you know, and it's silly to even think about, well, who had the greater ministry? I mean, it's silly. You know, it, they, they each had the ministry God called them to. Uh, Peter had to, I'm sure, deal, well, well, he did. He had to deal with, with the religious leaders saying, you're ignorant. You're an ignorant fisherman. Why should we listen to you? On the other end, Paul had to say, hey, I don't care about my education. All of that stuff is a pile of rubbish to me. You know, I just want, and so this idea of being poor in spirit it reduces us all to that same level where we happily can just depend upon God to fill us. And, and, and so when I start to think that it's my ability, it's my talent, God needs me, um, I, I'm going to be in trouble. Uh, there's going to be a lack of dependence upon the Holy Spirit. I don't go around saying, woe is me, I'm a terrible person. You know, that's not being poor. It's just being honest about the fact that God is God and you are not, as, as we used to say a few years ago. He's God and I'm not. Uh, and so whatever he wants me to do, whether it's something I'd never even dreamed of, you know, that, that the world would think a, a more qualified man should do, a more educated man, a, a seminary trained man, a, a missions graduate should do, I'm open to doing that. Or if it's something where I think, hey, I, uh, I'm above this. You know, I have education, I have this, but, but God wants me to clean this toilet right now. And, and I'm, just, I'm just Isaiah. Whether I've had a ministry or never had a ministry, I just see the Lord and I say, Lord, I'm really an unclean man. I come from a, a, a not a nation, but a race of unclean people. It's an amazing thing that you can fill us and use us and then God will touch your life and empower you to do those things. Uh, and so this poverty of spirit becomes the soil from which his fruit is able to be manifest in your life. So, good stuff. It's our foundation.